<laughs> and he goes to heaven, and uh, he goes up to the pearly gates, and uh, St. Peter you know, looks at him and says, oh, Mike, you know, you okay. so, okay, five national championships, um, you want a Olympic gold medal, you get it, you get into heaven. It's a joke. I ain't surprised. So he gets into heaven, so he says, okay, we'll take you to your mansion. So he takes him to the mansion. And it's nice. I mean, you've got five national championships, a gold medal, coach. So he gets a nice uh, two-story mansion, a couple bathrooms. He's pretty happy. There's even a blue D on the door. So he's, he's content until he looks out the back door. He looks out the back door and sees this massive house, huge house. Um, you know, Carolina blue columns. There's a big statue of Ramsey up front. Uh, in the back is this Tar Heel swimming pool, you know, shaped like the Tar Heel tree with five toes. And he's so happy that this house until he sees this huge house. So he's very, very mad. He goes to God. He says, God, I cannot believe this. Five national championships, Olympic gold. Roy's had three national championships. If he gets a house like that, and God just laughs and goes, Mike, can I call you Mike? He says, that's not Roy's house. That's my house. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> we're glad you're here. <laughs> We hope your shoes are not wet and uh, we'll not. That's right. <laughs> so, anyway, come up and, and uh, join us for a second. <laughs> I'm going to um, go back and report on the interesting theology that I was hearing <laughs> at the North Carolina Study Center. <laughs> All right, well, welcome back. I know that um, I ran over in the last session, so I feel like, you know, you've uh, probably felt like it's one continuous morning of sitting. So, and welcome to those of you who were not here in the first session. So um, let's see a few students. How many students do we have that were not here in the first session? A few. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Very good. All right. Well, I have some hand, I'm, I'm going to have some handouts here. Um, can somebody help me just pass these out? That's right. More than enough. notes together. So I told you that um, in the first session that I wanted to show a PowerPoint to show some slides. And in this session, I really don't want to show any slides, um, but I do want us to have a conversation. So that's the, that's the goal of, of here. And so for those of you who are students or who weren't here in the first session, I'm Warren Kinghorn. I'm a psychiatrist. I teach at the Divinity School at Duke, and I also teach in the Medical Center at Duke. And um, and um, run an organization called the Theology. I actually co-direct with Park Curlin, who I would say my co-director is a UNC undergrad and uh, medical school graduate who um, uh, somehow finagled a ticket to the game on Wednesday and was sitting like in the middle of all this Duke section in his like Roy Williams style, you know, like, you know, checkered, you know, blazer, you know, it was like really kind of, you know, Sad to see, so, but he, he, he enjoyed the game, and most of us, most of the rest of us, did not. So, um, so I, I co-directed the Theology, Medicine, and Culture Initiative, and especially if any of you students are interested in studying with us at the Divinity School at Duke, uh, a lot of our really most um, most uh, uh, amazing uh, fellows in theology, medicine, and culture. So students that are coming to study at the Divinity School for a year or two have been UNC medical students, and. And we're really hopeful to build um, connections with other UNC health profession schools as well, like pharmacy and dentistry. And so um, if any of you guys are interested in studying with us at the Divinity School, then let me know. And we can we can talk about that. So we, we really, um, uh, one of the things that UNC does not have that Duke does have is a Divinity School and an opportunity to bring Christian um, uh, specifically Christian formation into the heart of the university's academic mission. And so we see ourselves as um, hopefully being a resource both to Duke and to UNC in that regard and, and also to other universities around. And so to the extent that we can be a resource to anyone here on any level, we want to we do that. And that's why I said in the first session that we see ourselves as really complementary to what the North Carolina Study Center is, is doing. Um, so in this talk, I want to um, step back. So for those of you that weren't in the first uh, talk, we showed a bunch of slides on mental health on college campuses um, and uh, talked about like what is it that college students are reporting now in national surveys. Um, for those of you that are students, are you, can you tell me where, where you are in your 
in your years? Like, are you, are you undergrads or grad students, or are you, um, and like, wh where are you in the process? Uh, junior. Junior. Awesome. Good. Good. Junior undergrad. Junior undergrad. Good. Very good. Excellent. Yeah. I'm a freshman. Freshman. Good. Welcome. Yeah. Very good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. First year. First year. Yeah. Very good. Thanks. Awesome. So junior and first year for freshman. Very good. Awesome. Am I missing anybody? Okay. So welcome to the four of you. Thanks for being here. Um, I know it's like a rainy. Morning. <laughs> <laughs> Those students are not awake at this time. <laughs> um, I want to talk a, a little bit about something that I think is uh, relevant to uh, those of you that are undergrads and also relevant to those of us that are not, um, and probably equally relevant to the lives of parents and the lives of students, and, um, and something that I think we often don't really know how to talk about very well, and yet is really directly relevant to what it means to be a college student now, and what it means also to just be a Christian now, and that's um, that's a question of shame. And how do we feel shame? How do we recognize shame? Um, how do we manage shame? And what does the gospel have to say about shame? So I, I've given you a handout that has some scripture verses on it that we're going to be going through. Uh, but I want to say, for to start by just some kind of an introduction to how psychologists and psychiatrists talk about shame. Uh, at least when it's kind of made an object of research. To be honest, a lot of psychiatrists don't think very much about shame, and that's kind of a problem. But I think that, uh, so if we want to think about shame as, as it's kind of talked about in the world of mental health, how would we do that? And I want to frame this as a conversation, and I'm really welcome uh, pushback and also just um, stories or examples or questions. And I'll try to do a little better job of managing our time than I did initially. We have till 1130, is that, is that right? Is that, is that our, okay, awesome. So what is shame? Do we have a definition of shame to offer? Making someone feel insignificant. Feeling of insignificance, or making some, making someone feel insignificant. Good. Yeah. Good. Guilt has to place something in there to the sense of guilt, maybe. Of guilt, yeah. Like, what's the relationship between guilt and shame? Good. Yeah. So, are they synonyms? Are they different? Yeah. Good. Mocking. Mocking, yeah. Good. Yeah. Embarrassment. Embarrassment, good. Yeah. Good, yeah. These are these are all words that are close, that are often used as synonyms of shame or related to shame. Um, when I think about shame, here's, here's how I would define it, and then I want to make some qualifications to that. Shame is an emotion that is universal in human experience. There's not a single one of us in this room that has not experienced it. That involves negative bodily sensations and associated beliefs about the unworthiness or incompetence or undesirability of ourselves, of the self. And I think those those words of unworthiness or incompetence or undesirability are, um, are, are important. So, there, so, and this is where um, this is where psychologists often use language a little bit differently than we often use it in ordinary language. And so, I, I always want to be careful about that because I always I always don't like it when somebody like me, you know, wearing like a blazer on a Saturday morning, <laughs> gets up and says like the way that you've been using language is wrong and you need to use it in a different way. Because because I think that um, often we learn more from just paying attention to how we speak than we do from trying to prescribe definitions on other people, especially in psychology. Um, but it's, I think there are some helpful distinctions that are made by psychologists in three different categories. So one is between shame and guilt. Um, so often, often we use like guilt and shame as synonyms, but psychologists make a distinction. Does anybody know what that is? Yeah. Guilt more has to do with your actions, and shame is more a matter of self-concept. Yeah, that's right, exactly, that's exactly right. So this is an old distinction with with um, within psychology, where where, sh where guilt has to do with negative feelings about the actions of the self, or specifically about specific actions, and shame has to do with the self itself. Like, and so uh, so if I um, were to um, you know have a, an appointment, so I met with my department chair yesterday at psychiatry at Duke, which was you know turned out to be fine, but it was didn't know what was going to happen there. If I had, if I had uh, had you know overslept and missed that appointment, which
which would have been pretty horrible, then, um, then there'd be two ways for me to, to, to address that. One would be to say, uh, wow, like, you know, I uh, neglected to do a specific thing that then wronged that other person, you know, and so I need to really focus on, like, what does it mean to make that right? You know, so I, I, I acted in such a way that wasn't right, and I feel guilty about that, so how can I then see, you know, restitution and repair with my department chair, which may or may not have, you know, happened. Um, so that, that, that would be a, a way to frame that through guilt. The way that I probably would have actually done that had this happened, I'm even like feeling it in my body right now, is I would have been like, oh, I am completely worthless. I shouldn't even be a faculty member here. How could I possibly have missed an appointment with my boss? You know, and that would be a, a response of shame, where, where the, the attribution is not made to my actions, but it's made to myself. And psychologists distinguish between these two because guilt actually turns out to be a really positive thing in that way because like if you if you do something or you're part of something and you feel guilty about it that's actually a really positive thing because then it gives it's a pathway then to repair and uh and restoration of relationship and penance and other things and that's actually a good thing shame is correlated with the opposite of that because if, if the problem is not with your action but with you then what do you what do you do with that you know like the problem it's not just it's not just something you can make right, it's problems with you, problems with me as people. <coughs> so that's a, that's a guilt-shame distinction. So guilt is usually seen as a positive emotion, and shame is often seen as correlating with negative outcomes in that way. Um, there's also a distinction between shame and embarrassment. So anybody want, want to venture what that might be? So that, that could be part, yeah, so that there, there always is this thing between like internal attribution and what we think others are, are thinking or saying. Um, that is definitely part of it. The, the, the way that it's often, and I think this is this, a different way of saying that in the literature is that embarrassment is often a kind of heightened self-consciousness that might be a, an unwelcome heightened self-consciousness, but it's not tied necessarily to the feeling that the self is undesirable or un incompetent or unworthy. So if, um, if any of your undergrads are you know, in your class, like in English class, and your professor like, steps up and is like, I just want to say there was one paper that was just turned in that was just outstanding. It was just the best undergraduate paper I've ever read. And you know, this is who it is. It walks over to you and gives you their paper in front of the whole lecture room. <laughs> you probably would feel a little bit embarrassed. I would if I were in that kind of situation. Um, but that might or might not be associated with the feeling of like, I'm incompetent, I'm unworthy. It might just be a sense of like, I know I did a pretty good job on this paper, but I really wish that hadn't just happened. Like, so that's, that would be the difference between shame and embarrassment. Um, so embarrassment might, might or might not be a, a thing that's associated with a kind of negative self-attribution. And the third distinction that I think is maybe the most tenuous, and I, I say this in part because I don't think scripture makes this distinction very, very rigorously, so I'm reluctant for us to do it in this context, but it's between shame and humiliation. Um, so what do you think is... What do you think might be a distinction between shame and humiliation? Well, humiliation is probably more of a public thing, but shame can be just an internal aspect. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. So, so some people make the distinction between you can be humiliated, brought low by another. That's kind of literally what that means, like brought to the ground by another. Um, without then that being associated with an internal sense that I'm incompetent or unworthy or undesirable. Um, but unlike with guilt and embarrassment, humiliation is never a good thing. And, uh, and it's also associated with lots of really negative outcomes. And as we all know from conversations about, we just talked in the last talk about sexual violence on college campuses, and if you think earlier about like childhood sexual abuse or physical abuse, like it's incredibly common for people who have in different ways been degraded or humiliated or use several other synonyms to then internalize that, so, so they deal with that by blaming themselves. And so shame, this sense that I'm, it's my fault, I'm unworthy, it must be me, is very closely related to the experience of being humiliated, especially when that happens early in our lives. So, so I think but those are, those are distinctions that I made. Um, so what does shame look like? So when you're, I realize that I'm like probably, you know, 
as I said before, shame is a universal thing, and so all of us feel it. So I don't want to trigger lots of feelings of shame in this room by asking you what it looks like. But what does shame look like? What, what, what bodily expressions of shame are there? Hanging your head low. Hanging your head low. Yeah, there's actually a characteristic signature of shame. It's downcast eyes, um, slumped shoulders, hanging your head low. Um, looking down and kind of generally um, kind of trying to sort of shrink. That's, that's, that's what shame looks like. And anybody that hasn't felt that, you know, probably, you know, all of us have felt that. That's a, it's a universal thing. Um, and it's, it's something that kind of comes from deep within us. And uh, <coughs> it's interesting that like, it's, it's, it's consistent across cultures that that's how shame looks. Um, so, and we'll talk about what that means for social interaction in just a minute, because like the very bodily posture of shame tends to be that which actually keeps you from engaging other people. So what is that, what is that doing? So where does shame come from? Uh, there's a couple of theories on this in the way that psychologists and especially psychotherapists write. Um, one theory is that shame really starts with uh, conscious global negative attributions. So when a child is old enough to be able to have some sense of self, uh, which happens, you know, the usually, you know, beginning really in the beginning very early, but kind of, you know, helping to dis differentiate in the second, third, and fourth year of life, and then begins to be able to use language and begins to have capacity for self-concepts, then then that's where shame can start. So the, so when you can make an attribution like I'm dirty, I'm worthless, I'm incompetent, then that can be associated with the feeling of shame. So in that theory. Shame as, a, as an emotion follows the ability to be able to say to ourselves, I'm no good, you know, I'm not worthy, I'm not enough. Um, but there's another theory that actually says that shame starts even before we can use language, even before we have a clear awareness of ourselves. And there's a therapist named Patricia DeYoung who I just writes especially clearly about this. Um, she says basically that all of us as humans have a deep need for connectedness, and for being known by another. And yet, all of us, part of growing as selves is to learn that that doesn't always happen. The people that we need, including our parents, and you know, and so for those of us in the room that are parents, this applies to us as children, to our parents, and also to ourselves as parents, and like all of us as humans find that at some point, we need, we have a need that just isn't met. And sometimes that happens in ways that are really deeply damaging. And so, you know, there's there's gradations to this. So it, it's universally human life, but it's maybe more in some of, in some lives, some of our lives in this room than, than others, where these deep needs for connectedness don't get met. And and then what happens then is this kind of dis, disintegration of the self. So, so Patricia DeYoung says that shame is, she says, an, an experience of one's felt sense of self disintegrating in relationship to a dysregulating other. And that sounds very judgmental. She's not really meaning it to point to cause in that way, but it's just descriptive of the fact that, that shame emerges in relationship and in our own human needs for connectedness not being, not being met. And, and then we find ourselves then feeling dysregulated. And so then she says, once a child gets old enough, conscious attributions like I'm incompetent are actually ways to cover that, to actually make sense of that. Um, but shame doesn't necessarily start with, with our ability to make sense of ourselves. It starts even earlier. But shame is like built deeply into our, us as humans, um, and it's universal, and it's in this gradation. Some feel and experience shame in different ways than others. Um, there's a couple of key fears of shame, uh, and I'm going to say something that sounds kind of similar to what maybe Brene Brown would say. I think she's kind of drawing from the same wells that I am in this in this this kind of context. The first key fear of shame is that uh, you are not blank enough. Uh, and that is highly specific to context. And so basically, shame is going to be experienced when you are not blank enough, or blank is whatever is most valued for connection in your context. So it could be you're not smart enough. You're not Christian enough. You're not attractive enough. You're not thin enough. You're not progressive enough. You're not feminine or masculine enough. You're not something enough. And all of us are in situations where we find ourselves 
susceptible to that fear. You're not a good enough mother, you're not a good enough father, etc. Um, and the second key fear of shame is that if people only knew this about me, that I am not blank enough, that I would be ostracized. I wouldn't be welcome. I'd be cut off from relationship. I'd be alone. And even those of us that are introverts, and I consider myself an introvert, like doesn't really want to be fully alone. We need each other, even if we don't always want to admit that. That's kind of how shame, so shame looks like. It's maybe where shame comes from a little bit. Um, what are some responses to shame? How do we respond to the feeling of shame? May have. I'm not asking for deeply personal stories, but any kind of story or suggestion or what you see in others. Withdrawal. Withdrawal, yeah. Withdrawal is probably the primary way that we respond to shame. And, uh, and in terms of how we think about disconnection in college campuses, like, man, like, that's a really central thing. Like, shame leads us to, again, facial expressions, downcast eyes, like kind of closed in bodily postures. It leads us to avoid relationship. And that's one of the distinctions between shame and guilt. Guilt may actually prompt us to restore relationship. Shame prompts us to withdraw. To keep ourselves safe and to keep ourselves from being known. Uh, what else do you see? Denial. Denial? Yeah, say more. Well, I'm thinking, thinking about not my son that's here, but my son that's still in high school. Yeah. Um, well, it might never be good to say to your child, you're not something enough. Mm -hmm. I mean, but that might be what he hears, even though we're trying to simply parent him and get him to yeah. step out of the box or get him to try something, but what he hears is, you're not good enough. Yeah. So then he starts denying everything that we're trying to get him to do. Yeah. And I'm not that way. You know, whatever. Yeah. I do do this. So this is partly, this is partly our sense-making of, of when we feel shame. Like, it's, it's actually, this, this is a little bit ironic, but it's actually... If we feel bad, it's more comforting to have a, a story that makes sense of why we feel the way that we do, rather than to not be able to make sense of how we feel the way that we do. So if you're feeling shame, then to say something like, I'm just not good enough, actually it's kind of comforting because it gives a way of at least explaining it. You know, it doesn't just provide a way out, but it provides a way of explaining it. So like, you know, I'm feeling bad because I'm just not holy enough or I'm not, you know, whatever. And, uh, and so that actually, so it, it, that would be a broader concept of like attacking oneself that we actually kind of can consciously devalue ourselves, and that may not be the case in, in your specific situation, but, but we, we can actually bring ourselves low in order to respond to our feeling of shame, so it becomes a kind of vicious circle in many ways. What else do you see? Yeah. The seat might be too strong a word, but fake it till you make it or conform with the group you're trying to fit in with? Yes, so this is my personal <laughs> response to shame, <laughs> is to try harder to keep going, to just keep digging in, to keep putting on appearances, and to not let people see you weak. And uh, I think that, for those in the room that are men, and maybe especially white men, that kind of is like something that pretty deeply can you know tied into what it means to be who we are. And and uh, and so that trying harder, leaning in more, keeping going is and 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 the the kind of thing about that response to shame is it might work. You know, you might become a professor at Duke. You might become, <laughs> some of you may not want to do that, but you might become a physician. You might become, you know, president. You might become, there's lots of things that might happen that you get you lots of adulation. But then what happens underneath the surface of that? And what's happening outside of those areas of your life that are rewarded for trying harder, like marriage or your relationship with God or just your ability to sit with yourself, with myself, I'm speaking. I'm not, everything that I'm saying here applies to me as well as to, as to any, any of us in the room or beyond it. So trying harder is one. What are, what are their responses? I just think of Genesis, just the brokenness of the world and the research that you decided yeah. that shame could be is there even before you are born or yeah. very young. Yeah. And that that is part of living in a broken world and yeah. that we have this you know that evil and darkness is in the world yeah and then that that's a real thing that impacts all of us absolutely i think that's right and I, i'll say this in a minute but i think that to be born into a world that's already structured by shame is part of what it means to be born into a world that's marked by sin 
Uh, and, and so our concept of original sin is in part related to that. And I think that's, that's, that's why I think theologically we can understand this as universal human experience, because we are all born into a world that's marked by sin. And, uh, and, and that's why we need grace. So I appreciate that. A couple other responses that I've, I've, I've seen and that I've, maybe others, this is not necessarily a complete list, is we talked about withdrawal, we talked about attacking oneself. Um, you can also attack others. So if you feel ashamed, but you can kind of find a way to uh, put that off on somebody else, to, make, to, to, to blame somebody else, or to make it really a problem that somebody else has done something wrong, then uh, that may be a way to avoid uh, your own feeling of in incompetence or inadequacy or undesirability. Um, we can also um, respond to shame by numbing. So, you know, drinking alcohol for about 30 minutes is a pretty effective way to ameliorate certain feelings of negative feelings of all types. But the problem with alcohol and drugs and other and sex and other things that we might use just to avoid negative feelings is that it never works out very well as a cycle, as a pattern. It always makes things worse in the long run. But you know, part of what I think drives binge drinking, for example, on college campuses, among other things, is like it's just a way to get rid of negative feelings we don't know what to do with. Um, and then there's also the possibility of owning shame, of leaning into it, of addressing it. And that's what I want to talk about through the perspective of the gospel. Um, but one thing to think about is, um, well, first of all, shame is associated, I won't get into detail, but with a lot of different sort of mental health problems that get diagnosed by people like me, by psychiatrists. Um, so we connect it to, and when, when you do um, structured inventories of shame and you correlate that uh, with, and these are most, most correlational studies, when you correlate that with, with uh, meeting criteria for different mental health diagnoses, shame is correlated with depressed, major depression, it's correlated with anxiety, um, it's correlated in complex ways with PTSD, and especially both that surviving trauma can often, uh, shame can be accompanied by difficulty recovering, and there are certain forms of trauma that we often call moral injury, where the, where the, the trauma is a result of some act done by the self. Um, I, I, I'm at work at the Durham VA, so I see this in soldiers a lot, that, um, that actually shame is kind of the central driver of PTSD, in some cases, not in, not in all, but in some cases. Um, shame is connected in complex ways to suicide, so there was a recent Duke study that showed that uh, among combat veterans, the relationship between PTSD and suicidal behavior was mediated statistically by shame uh, in a inventory. So that, uh, those are complex kind of mathematical calculations, but there, was, there was, it seems to be a connection there. Um, and shame is absolutely connected to addiction and substance use disorders. So, so there's, there's lots of connections there. And I would just say, um, before we turn to scripture, uh, like how does shame affect our communities and our um, families and our, and our relationships? And one thing I found very helpful, and as and um, without going into kind of very specific details, but in, when thinking about if you're ever in a situation where you have people that are in a kind of a work environment, or maybe a congregation, or a board of some sort, and you have people that like you know are kind of well-intentioned people, they're not like evil people. Very few people are like intrinsically evil, but there's just like it's just a completely messed up system. Like people are at each other, they're like fighting with each other, they're, set, they're, they're putting each other apart from, there's triangulating going on and things are just really not going well. Then it's helpful to step back and to say, how is shame working in this ecology? And if you think about that, then often it can be a way to help understand like why people are treating each other so badly. The people that might be like faithful Christians on an elder board are all of a sudden like, at odds with each other, it's like, what's happening with shame in that context? Because often what you see in that case is people feeling shame and not knowing quite what to do with it and offloading that onto others by attacking others, and, and it can be really complicated. And I would argue that you could do a helpful shame inventory of our modern political culture also, about what's happening in Congress, what's happening in, our, in, in the way that we talk about politics, and how does shame play a, a part in that? So this matters for like who we are as a people in lots of different ways, as well as who we are as a church. Um, so how has shame healed? Um, uh, I have a lot of scripture. We get through in ten minutes, so we'll kind of you know, keep going. Um, there's a couple of ways in which I think shame is healed, and and 
One is a more superficial thing, and another is a deeper thing. And it's really the only the second that I think leads to in any way true healing, or at least, and I say healing in the way that, that it's not clear to me that in this life we'll ever be fully healed from shame in the sense that shame won't play a part in our lives. Maybe it shouldn't ever be completely gotten rid of, but we can learn to live faithfully and healthfully with shame and not allow it to become a source of sin and a source of brokenness rather than a manifestation of it. So one, one, one way is, this kind of the easiest way, is to think through the attributions that we're making against ourselves. So if you go to um, a therapist who really focuses on like the beliefs of the self and you, and let's say, to take my hypothetical example, like, you know, if I had missed my appointment with my chair yesterday and I went to a therapist, they would say, well, like, you know, help me to, help me not to um, blame myself and, and to think of myself as inadequate or completely incapable of being in my professional role, but rather focus it more on the activity and the action. So that would be like getting rid of the cognitive attribution that I'm, you know, that I'm, but the problem is, is like, that tends to be a kind of immediate solution, but it doesn't tend to get to the deeper roots of the problem. If, if I, if I, in that case, you know, don't, uh, you know, find ways to reframe that own situation, shame pops up in my life in other ways. It's like a, it's like a, a weed that, you know, you, you pull it up and then it immediately grows up again because the underlying, you know, I have a, in my yard, there's a bunch of bamboo that like, it's amazing. Like, you know, you can, you can cut it down, you can keep out there and it'll still continue to pop up. And that's how shame is in my life. Um, so let's do, let's do so the, 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 the deeper way that we can be healed of shame is to allow ourselves both to feel our shame and to give ourselves vulnerably in relationship and in those relationships to be known and loved and healed. And that's really it. Like, that's the only way out, pretty much. Uh, and doesn't mean, that doesn't mean marriage, necessarily, although marriage can be a way that shame can be healed or made worse. Uh, but it does mean that we need each other in various kinds of meaningful, thick relationships. So how do we think about shame in scripture? So we could spend a whole hour on kind of thinking through kind of theology of, of shame or more. But let's look at this, at this handout just to kind of begin to think. And this is kind of where we start the conversation. So we see in Genesis, uh, in, the, in the creation accounts, Genesis 1 and 2, the man and his wife were both naked, open and vulnerable to each other, and were not ashamed. But then after the original sin, uh, after Adam and Eve both ate of the fruit, uh, the, the eyes of both were opened, they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. And fig leaves are particularly abrasive, uh, so they're putting an abrasive material that would hurt and scratch on their most vulnerable parts of their bodies to hide from each other. And then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Does that sound to you like what we're talking about with shame? There's a way in which Adam responds, not only by, by, by um, Adam and Eve responded by, hiding their vulnerability from one another, um, but also by hiding from God. And then, you know, and then God said to Adam, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man did not say, you're right, I've sinned. <laughs> you know, he said, the woman whom you gave to me, be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. So you see here both like a kind of hiding and you also see a displacement attacking others. You know, the man attacks the woman, the woman, you know, blames the serpent, all of them end up being thrown out of the garden, and we now have the state of the world that we're in. And what, and what many people have pointed out is that, you know, shame, shame is, is in some ways can be thought of helpfully because it's a marker that we live in a sinful world. If we feel shame, that can be a way in which we can be restored into relationship with God. But others have pointed, and there's, a, there's a book on shame by a, a psychiatrist colleague named Kurt Thompson, you may have read, called The Soul of Shame, and he makes this point that shame is not just a manifestation of sin or a kind of helpful marker that sin needs to be restored, but it can be itself the cause of sin. 
It's part of a cycle where we, we sin, we feel shame, and that shame then leads us into further cycles of sin until we feel unable to, to be restored from it. And so part of sanctification is to be able to name and to heal shame. So then shame, you see it in the Old Testament. You know, I won't read all this verse in Psalm 44, uh, but um, this is where shame and humiliation are often very closely tied in ways that shame is described in Scripture. You've made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of all around us. You've made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me, my shame has covered my face. Um, at the end of verse 22, because of you we were being killed all day long and accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Rouse yourself. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Awake, do not cast us off forever. And then we have in Hebrews 12 this account of a great cloud of witnesses. Let us, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer, the wayfarer, the one who goes before us, and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Here in scripture we have an account of one who has uh, borne humiliation, who has borne our vulnerability, who has gone to the cross through the ultimate place of humiliation and shame, and who has <clears throat> submitted to it and triumphed over it in the resurrection and ascension. That's the life that we are invited into. Uh, and you see here, this leads to this reversal. You know, all of a sudden we see here, Paul's saying these really like paradoxical things, like God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Therefore, it is, it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. It's not through our own, like, my own, like, striving and getting good grades to get into medical school that, like, helps me to avoid shame. It's, if I'm to boast, it's to boast in the life of Jesus. That's the only really way through it. And then you have here in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? So Paul, like, the one who knew everything about what it meant to strive, you know, to be good enough for God, was brought low and then was able to say things like, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or whatever else? As it is written, for your sake, we, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And you'll notice that that comes directly from Psalm 44, which is a psalm about being shamed and humiliated. Um, knowing all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. So this is the gospel's response to a world marked by shame, that Jesus came, bore our shame, and invites us into his life. So I think there's three ways in which we can think about what it means to be God's children in a world that's marked by shame. One is that we are God's beloved creatures. The deepest truth of who we are, of who any of us are as parents or as students, is that we are known and loved by God. There is no deeper truth about who we are, and we have to keep reminding ourselves of that. Um, Genesis 1.31, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was good. And I love, there's a Catholic philosopher named Joseph Pieper who just um, kind of summarized this. And he said, if you want to think about what love is in, in this biblical sense, really following the logic of Genesis 131, it's a way of turning to anything in creation, but especially human beings, and saying, it's good that you exist. It's good that you're in this world. And that's something we need to tell each other, even on rainy Saturday mornings. Um, we're made in the image of God, and that image marks us with a dignity that can never be taken away. There is no way to take away the image of God in a human being. There's a great book by John Kilner that, that talks about this in a lot of biblical detail. And we're invited into the life of Jesus. And these are, these Galatians 4, 4 through 7 is probably, for me, the most central um, image that I understand in my own life as a Christian. 
When the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as children. And because you are children, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a child, and if a child, then also an heir through God. So the logic here, like you don't miss the logic of what's happening. God has sent the spirit of his son, the breath of his son, is now in our hearts. So that our breath is now our spirit. God's, the son's spirit through us is able to call to God as father. So we've been brought by the spirit into the body and life of the son, into the very life of God able to be loved by the Father as the Son is loved by the Father because we've been brought by the Spirit into the Son. It's this deeply Trinitarian image of what it means to be held in Jesus' life. So we're not alone. We're held in a life that is given to us by grace and is way beyond anything we can imagine. And so then finally, we are called to embody that in community. So I think there's, it's important for us to start with the fact that we are loved by God, held in Jesus' life, but also, what does it mean for us to embody that as community? So when Paul talks about this, he talks about bear one another's burdens, and this way you fulfill the law of Christ. And we're given this image of the body that uh, when one member suffers, all suffer together with it. When one member is honored, all rejoice together with it. We are brought in grace into a body where we have the opportunity to be vulnerable with each other and to know what it means to walk with each other and bear with each other. It's really hard work. It's not easy here. It's not easy at Duke. It's not easy in our congregations. But it's the gospel, and there's no other way to survive in a world that's more crushing. Thank you all. <laughs>
students to see of you? What do you want professors to see you? What about your community, wherever you are? Um, well, first of all, that you're not here on accident, that you are smart enough to be here. Um, being a Carolina student, of course, there's a lot of academic pressure, and so that is clearly something that we try to show. Um, I'm reading this book now. It's called Scary Close by Donald Miller. Um, if you haven't read it, it's good reading. I'm halfway through, so I can't fully endorse. But anyway, he talks about he talks about um, our ace card. So it's kind of this thing we try to show everybody. It's like, oh well, if you know, I'm kind of behind in this category. I want to prove myself in this one. And so for a lot of students, it's that it's academics. And so of course, that's why we're up all night trying to get the best grades and compete on that and. Um, you know, so in terms of what we want other people to know about us on this campus, it's that. It's the ACE card. And I've talked about academics, but clearly there are other things you can take a look at. I mean, uh, for some people it's sports, athletics, they want to, I have uh, friends who are in four IM teams and they want to be the best at that. And I have friends who, you know, are involved with other stuff and want to move their way up through an organization, even in ministry. Um, so I'm a Young Life College leader, and I love doing that. But for me, sometimes, that can be an ace card. I'm like, oh, I've been there, done that. I know this. I'm, like, I'm good at ministry. I feel like I know what I'm doing, and I want other people to know about it. I don't necessarily blame my professors. Like, that's not what I go to tell them, but it's, it's kind of like our ace card. And so if you go around this campus, it's, it goes back to, I mean, what Dr. Kingworth was saying about shame, I believe that ties into this a lot because you kind of try to put that there first. Um, so generally, that's kind of what I would feel like on this campus, that's what other people want you to know about yourself. I have a little bit of a different perspective being a freshman because I feel like a lot of us come in and just don't really care as much what we're known for or like what's known about us, but just we want to be known. Um, and that can be found in a lot of different things. Like there's a reason why there's over 800 clubs on campus. Because um, I think a lot of Carolina students just want to be known and feel like people know them for a variety of different things. Um, and so I think that a lot of freshmen, like, you know, with a Christian perspective, we know that that's something that can only be fulfilled in Jesus. But, you know, Carolina students will look to all sorts of different things to try and find an identity. Um, and so I think a lot of times it's not necessarily what you're even known for, but just the fact that you're known and that people... Um, know something about you no matter what it is. Um, so I think that can look a lot of different ways on campus, but it also kind of provides an opportunity for the Battle House to kind of, in the study center, to kind of step into that um, and kind of show students where that can kind of be fulfilled. So it's interesting. One of you said something about social media already from the first one, and <laughs> also mission Battle House. So I guess, like, in that sense, then, how does, how has, trying to think of the word. How has community on, how do you find community on campus or how has that also been helped while at the study center? Because I feel like while students on Carolina, you want that sense of feeling and acceptance and belonging. And so finding where your community is, is a huge place while you're a student. So I guess like the intersection of like Christian community on campus or at the Battle House, how have you seen that? Like how has that helped you and also like how has it been? I started out, um, my like first experience at Carolina was with Carolina Way Camp that was put on by the study center. And it was incredible. Like so many students just from a lot of different backgrounds and we learned about the different campus ministries um, and their kind of roles on campus. And so that was a really great way for me to find community and that was just like a great kind of starting off point for me in my freshman year. And then throughout my first semester, I was just being able to build on that um, at the Battle House. And, just meeting new people and finding community across different ministries. Um, and then so far in my second semester, it's been really cool because I've seen that the study center is also a place to invite people in. It's not just to build up my Christian community and make me feel comfortable and like I have people like me. It's like we're on this campus where there are other people who are broken just like us and that need a savior just like us. And so being able to say like, hey, there's this cool place you have that has some coffee and tea. And, and not that you blindside them and don't tell them it's a Christian <laughs> Not sneaky like that, but invite people into this and get to experience what Christian community is like. Um, I like that it's, it kind of has both. Of like, I get to come here to seminars and like, dig in my faith and learn so much more and just grow, but also get to invite people into that. Um, I think that's a really cool part of the study center. Um, completely 
echo what Ivy said. And of course, we have very different experiences. So actually, I was here, I guess, one of the first years of the study center. So I'm a senior now. It's been about four years. And um, I just think back to that kind of time period and like, I've never had to go without this resource here. And that's crazy to me because even as a senior, I'm here almost every single day of the week. Um, and, you know, going back ultimately to that, that, that Christian community, it is so important um, here on campus because I believe we, we have the Word of God, we have the Bible, we clearly can pray, we can talk to God, um, but people who can build us up in our faith and also just walk through life with us that's so important. Um, and so for me, going back to my, my freshman year, I, I mean, at least it sounds like you're having fun. I did not have, <laughs> I did not have the same experiences. I, I hated it here. And I didn't want to be, I didn't really want to be at Carolina. I did not feel a part of the Christian community. I just wasn't, it, I was like, this isn't for me. And I was miserable. And I kind of, a lot of that, I feel like, goes back to the way my heart was because I wasn't, open to that kind of community. I feel like I was cut off by specific campus ministries, at least not deliberately, but kind of like, oh yeah, you can come like come to our stuff, come to our stuff, but no one was ever going to me. It was kind of just like a come. And so I feel like this study center literally comes smack dab in the middle of campus and says, everybody, like we're a hub. Like people come here for everything. And um, not only that, but we're inviting people. Ivy said that. And so it has been such an important part of that community building for me to be a part of the study center. And so my sophomore year didn't end bad, just spoiler alert. Um, my sophomore year, I joined a ministry called Young Life, like I said, I'm a Young Life college leader. Um, and through that, I've been able to spend a lot of time here and with the younger grades and kind of helping people plug into different campus ministries. And I realized that, that is so important on this campus. And the study center acts as a great hub for that. Um, I also work with this other group called Kingdom Serve, and basically what we do is we have two goals. One is to serve our community, and the other is to bring campus ministries together to do that. And so I believe that's something here on campus that is so important, um, and it's definitely something that the study center has been doing for the past few years. That's awesome. So you kind of went into a little bit of like, you didn't feel accepted, kind of somewhat of shame. So I guess for both of you also, what do you think college students do not, what do you think Carolina students do not want other students to know about them? Or it's pretty much the same of the first question. And like, how does that show up on campus? And I guess how can the study center be a help in that way? <clears throat> so if you don't feel comfortable answering the question, you don't have to. <laughs> <clears throat> Yeah, um, I think one thing is that a lot of college students, kind of like also I'm saying like the highlight reel thing, it's like you want to put on this show that like you have it all together, when like a lot of times behind the scene, it's just not that way at all. Um, and so I think a lot of Carolina students don't want to admit that we're broken people and that we don't have it together. And yes, you might have a good GPA, but that doesn't mean that you're feeling fulfilled or that like your heart is whole. Um, but I think a lot of Carolina students want to make it seem like that's how it is. Um, and so you see that on campus in so many different ways, but you through whether it's through like some like internship that you're trying to get or whatever it may be that you're trying to put on your highlight reel. I kind of echoing what Austin said earlier. I think that's a big part of what students like don't want people to know that that's not the real what not what's really going on behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I agree with that. Uh, it I think it's important for us to trace the root of what we're trying to hide. So what is causing that shame? Um, and so for everybody, it's different, right? People want to feel themselves like they're the smartest. They want to be the ones who, you know, mentally can say, okay, I am, you know, X, I am Y. Some people just want to be loved by others. Other people just want a good time. They want quick pleasure. And so we, if you're able to dissect the root of the problem, then you're able to say, okay, what is it I'm really trying to hold back and how is that affecting my ministry and my life? And another spoiler alert, Christians aren't perfect either. And we do this little game of hiding within campus ministries. I mean, like I said, I'm in, I'm in Young Life and I lead a small group of guys. And sometimes, like, even for me and for them, we just, we just talk about the good stuff. How's our week going? Like, stuff like that. And even in a time where it's like seven guys, we just 
feeling we can't be vulnerable sometimes, mm -hmm. even in a safe environment. And so I, I think it's, it's very important, like I said, to kind of go back to the root of the problem to figure out what is going on uh, beneath the heart and how can we go forward with that. I feel like I've gotten to know you both pretty well because I was in a seminar with Ivy for Designing Your Life and I helped lead a Bible study at Austin's house that he's in and attends when he's not working for Domino's or doing some awesome <laughs> other thing. And so but I feel like you're both like very grounded in your identity in Christ. And so I feel like, I guess the question is, how as students on Carolina, because Austin, you've had to do this for the past four years in Ivy, I feel like as a freshman, like you are, you've done a, a pretty awesome job at it, even for a semester and a half. So how can, how can students uh, help keep their identity grounded in Christ while they're here? And also how can their parents be a help as well? Because sometimes it can be a help or a hindrance. And so, yeah, just depends. I can, I can take that first. Um, well, honestly, like, I'll, I'll, I'll start with, um, I'll start with the identity thing. So. It is so easy. College is, I mean, especially your first year, I mean, you'll talk more about this, I'm sure, but that is so often a deciding factor for what do you want to be the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. Not vocationally, because yes, we like to hide behind our job and say that's our identity, but that's not our identity. If you want that to be our identity, identity you're going to be miserable because you're always going to be comparing yourself to other people. And so I think it's so important for on this campus to realize quickly those things aren't going to be enough for and that you have to root your identity in something that is constant. And so, I mean, if you think about it long enough, of course it's hard to trust in God. It's hard to have faith, especially on a campus like this where people will fight you about it. Um, but, you know, you, you'll get those nights where you're in your dorm room alone and you're upset and you're like, why am I here? What's my purpose? When, you know, your grades and your identity and that falls apart when it's your girlfriend is your identity and then you break up and you fall apart. Or whatever it is, there are so many things that if you root yourself in that, it's not gonna end well in the long run. And so for me, kind of how I've done the putting my identity in Christ, honestly, I don't do a great job at it a lot of times. Um, I catch myself oftentimes putting it more in my ministry or in my friends, even though they're good people and that's good ministry, it's hard not to get wrapped up in the earthly part of it um, that you know I'm, I'm doing every day. And so there are a few ways I kind of do that and I, I guess seeking wisdom about it. I, I mentioned a little bit earlier, but first of all, be in scripture. You know, being able to read scripture that is you know, God-breathed, useful for correction, teaching, rebuking, and training in righteousness, that's awesome. Being in community, people that can build you up and remind you that your identity is not in anybody else. And then of course, being constantly in prayer. I think that's important. And so then touching on the second part of your question, it depends on your relationship with your parents. I'll say I have a very great relationship with my parents, I'd like to think. Um, and, you know, and so they have been a very big part of keeping me steady. Um, and so honestly, the Battle House is a great resource for that because, you know, I won't get all business on you, but for, for I, I take a lot of business classes and about strategy and whatever, and it's really about utilizing your resources to make the most value, the most strategic value, creating value or whatever. And so I believe as a parent, oftentimes the best way you can help is by helping somebody who is already really good at it, and that's the battle house. And so for y'all who are here helping out, honestly, that's tremendous. Like it, for you, it may not look like calling your kid and saying, how are you doing? How's your spiritual walk? If it is, great. But also another way you can help, like I said, is by helping out the people who are doing it well. I know a lot of you are also on Young Life Committee and that's very helpful. And you know, other ways for sure they're to get involved with people who are doing it and have done it for a long time. So. Yeah, coming into college, this is kind of one of the things that was on the forefront of my mind. Um, because when I would tell people, especially like some of the older people at my church that was going to Carolina, they were like, be careful, you know, like you're going to change, like you, you, you know, and so I, I was kind of like, oh, okay, like, you know, um, and one way that my parents really encouraged me in that um, was they just reminded me that my identity isn't, you know, being a Christian or being like a good girl or being a, in this specific ministry, it's like my love for Christ and like the fact that like, I am a daughter of the Most High King and like it's not just about being in this like Christian community. Like I knew that I was stepping into a place where 
it wasn't my small little bubble anymore, but that's okay because I have something that's constant in my life. Um, and my parents were really awesome about reminding me of that. Um, so when, it, when I came to Carolina, it, it was really awesome to be in a place where, at the study center, there's so many different ministries. So it's not just about like you know, what you're involved in. It really is just based on Jesus. Um, because there's just so many people coming from different ministries and it's not, you know, you're a part of this or you're a part of that and these are who your friends are. This is, this is about Jesus. Um, and so that was really helpful for me in kind of finding my identity um, in Jesus at Carolina and how that kind of all fits together. Uh, but my parents were really just awesome in that they just reminded me of truth. And they weren't, you know, constantly prodding, like, here's a list of churches you can go to. And you know, they weren't, like, doing anything like that, but just reminding me of truth and of who I am. Um, that was really awesome. Uh, just as I came into a new place, and then this, the study center just really helped kind of reinforce that. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I definitely think my first semester was just great to be surrounded by people who believed a lot of the same things as me here, but then also were inviting me to go back out onto campus and share that with other people. Can I add something as well? Yes, Lydia, you may. Hi, I'm Lydia. Um, <laughs> I'm a junior here, and I think one of the ways that parents can really help their kids sur uh, survive the culture of Carolina is to pray for them and to pray with them. Um, and I know that's implied, I mean, that seems kind of obvious, but I will never forget that my freshman year, I would wake up on Tuesdays and Thursdays and I had a really early commitment. And the very first thing, the very first person I talked to was my mom and she would pray on the phone with me. And it was a short prayer, it was like maybe five or 10 minutes as I went to my activity, but that was the very first thing that happened in the morning and that was rooting me and grounding me to every activity I had that day. And that, I'll never forget that and it definitely helped me just kind of realize what was important in college and what was um, the truth that was going to keep me grounded all four years. So please pray for your kids and pray with them. Let, let them know that you are praying for them. Mm -hmm. So if any other students would like to add in or chip into any of this, they can as well. So before we end, does anyone have any questions for them besides myself or about the team come on? Do you have any questions that you'd like to ask me? Really glad, really grateful to hear what you're saying. Yeah. Austin, right? Mm -hmm. Forgive me if you sort of covered this and if you did just kind of humor me. Yeah. Yourself, but how, what would you say was your turning point? You said early on you didn't feel, you know, like you belonged here and, and you, you really didn't, there was a barrier between you and the campus ministry or whatever. whatever. Mm -hmm. how, how did was, maybe it wasn't a hard turn, maybe it was a slow veer, but what were some of the mechanisms by which you? got to where you are from that place? It's a very good question. Um, and I, I, I think I look back and I'm like, why did that have to happen? Freshman year. <laughs> Honestly, so many times I'm like, this is why. Because I can tell people who are going through it that it's going to be okay. Mm -hmm. And so much of it was an attitude thing for me. So I came from high school where, you know, growing up it was, I'll say I won't write a book and give it to you right now, I'm trying to simplify it. But um, anyway, I kind of had this attitude that everything, you know, I, I, can, I can do it, I'm the smartest, I'm, I always get the most involved, and I want to be X, Y, and Z in Carolina. And so I came in with the thought, oh, I, I do want to get involved in campus ministry, but I don't really know which one, and I kind of want to be involved with as many things as possible, kind of for like, almost for my own value, right? To, to make myself look better. And so navigating freshman year, it was this hard challenge if you lost all your, your good friends, but and every, so everybody's trying to please each other. It's a lot of that first conversation we had. Um, and you know, you want to seem cool in front of everybody, and that that was what I got caught up in. And so my first year, it was a lot of me kind of at first saying, Oh, I don't really want to make the effort with these people. I don't want to really make the effort with this campus ministry. I just kind of want to go to their events and you know, hang out with them. They're not as cool, like they're not smart, they're not as whatever, and I, during it, of course, I would never think I was thinking that, but looking back, I was, I was really selfish about the way I was doing it, and so at the end of my first year, I looked back at it, and I said, you know what, I got the GPA, the exact GPA I wanted, I got, I started my own student organization, I had, you know, been very involved with the highest committee of student government for my grade, I had done X, Y, and Z, I had done everything I wanted to do, but I was miserable. 
and I hated my first year at Carolina. And so that summer was a lot of reflecting and kind of saying, okay, well, what, what next, right? And I, I did spend some time in China, which was helpful to kind of put perspective on things. Um, and so I went back my sophomore year and tried to get out of my comfort zone. And I think that's so important for many of you, if you have kids here, encourage them in that. Honestly, I, I say it to my small group all the time, like, we need to get out of our comfort zones. And I feel like that was what was a big part of turning me around. It didn't happen instantly, but my sophomore year, you know, I started going to do more volunteer work, and I started to go to um, invest in people more specifically. And I, I also spent more time in the work, spent more time praying, and kind of humbled myself <clears throat> to say, okay, God, I need you. I can't drive my life. Even if I get what I want, I hate it. So... Lord, show me what to do with my time. <laughs> like, kind of doing less of this and more of this. Mm -hmm. so. One thing I have to add, I was just like thinking about just now. Um, in Mark 2, there's a place where Jesus is going to eat at the house of Levi. And he's going and his like, disciples are following him. And these are, there are these, like, tax collectors and um, just, like, other sinners that are there with him. I think we've talked a lot about today about just, like, the shame that is in this place and that a lot of students are feeling and just kind of all of the feelings that come along with that. And Jesus is eating with them, and the Pharisees are like, dude, like, why are you eating with these you new know, tax collectors and sinners? And he, that's when the verse about, like, you know, I didn't come to heal those who were righteous. Like, I came to heal the sick. Um, and I think that's something that the study center does really well here. It's like they're like allowing Jesus to heal the sick in this place. Um, and so as much as we've talked about like you know the shame and like yes that's real and that's really hard, but like at the same time like the ultimate healer is in this place and he's healing like the students on this campus. And so just be encouraged by that. Um, that I'm also praying about that. Uh, that students are being like healed on this campus, and like Austin was saying, like you know, even though there are like the hard things here, like the Lord is coming in and redeeming that. Um, and I've definitely seen that in my life and my short time at Carolina, but also sweet time at Carolina so far. Um, that's just been like a big thing for me, and something that the station has been a big part of. Awesome. Well, on that note, I think we can turn this into Allison, but give it up for these two students.